Good morning, everybody. Okay, this morning, we're going to, again, try and get through two chapters. We did the two chapters last week. Just to let you know that there's lots of archaeological evidence and there's all the, the names of the gods and all that kind of stuff, and I've just chosen to leave that out. So if you want to investigate the archaeological evidence for all this stuff that we're talking about, go for it. It's interesting, but the problem is, if I tell you all the names of the gods and, you know, this person, they found this, by the time you get to the end of the sermon, you've forgotten it. So if you're interested in that, I'm just letting you know that it's there. Have a look. I do mention some things, obviously. I've mentioned the names of some of the gods to let you know that it's real, that the, the gods were there and um, they were destroyed or shamed. But I just try and keep it to more application and more understanding of what the what it's saying for us today. You get a good balance there. So basically, um, the people of Egypt had been irritated by the first six plagues, you know, the, the lice and the flies and things like that. But the seventh and the eighth, they devastated the Egyptian economy. That was a destroying of the cattle. And the ninth one, which we talked about last week, was a plague of darkness, the three days of darkness. And that sets the stage for this Passover, for the last terrible plague. Well, I'm going to read about it from somewhere else in the Bible first. We'll go to Psalm 78, verse 49. And Psalm 78 is a retelling of the Exodus. We're not going to read the whole thing, just a bit that talks about the last plague. So while we're looking at that, I'll pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you that you have given us so much um, in this passage. And we just pray that you'll help us to um, understand it and to uh, apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Psalm 78, verse 49. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble. By sending angels of destruction among them, he made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague, and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. So it tells here how he did it. He sent angels of destruction among them. So if you're wondering how it happened, there's your answer. Okay, now back to Exodus chapter 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. So it's interesting because right at the start, God told Moses that he was going to kill the firstborn. But God was showing mercy to Pharaoh by giving him lots and lots of chances to repent. But Pharaoh didn't use those chances. Instead, he grew harder and harder. And now it's too late. Verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So the Hebrew word translated borrow is she'al. It appears 168 times in scripture and generally means request or demand. So going back to Genesis 15, 14, God promised Abraham that his descendants would leave Egypt with great substance or great riches. And he repeated the promise to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And now it's happening. We'll read in chapter 12 that when they asked the Egyptians, the Egyptians gave their wealth to the Jews. So what right did the Israelites have to request the gold and silver or the riches of the Egyptians? 
Yeah, that's it. They'd worked there for centuries without any compensation, without any pay. And so basically the Egyptians owed much to the Israelites and, and this was their pay for all the work that they had done. Now, fast forwarding to the church, all right? Although the world doesn't realize this, the world owes much to the church too. Okay, this is an application for us. The building of hospitals and orphanages, the elevation of women, the dismantling of slavery, the institution of public education, they all find their roots in the church. So if it wasn't for the church, Christianity, a lot of those things wouldn't be there or wouldn't be as good as they are now. Wherever the gospel has gone, there's been great change. Also, it's the church that is restraining the forces of evil presently. And when the church is taken up in the rapture, the world's going to go, yoo-hoo, the church is out of here. But the world will plunge into such immorality and face so many problems that then they'll see the difference the church made. And then they'll be grateful, but it's too late then. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So the people knew, the people of Egypt knew that Moses was God's servant, that Moses was God's prophet. And they also knew that God was greater than their gods. I think the only person at this time that didn't realize that or didn't want to admit that was Pharaoh himself. Verse 4, Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. So, in chapter 4, verse 22, God declared, Israel is my firstborn. Okay? So there's a link here. Because Pharaoh had enslaved and ordered the systematic annihilation of Israel, God's firstborn, God was justified in ordering the annihilation of Pharaoh's firstborn. And compensation is a fundamental law of life. God isn't unjust in permitting this law to operate in the world. Pharaoh drowned the Jewish babies, so God drowned Pharaoh's army. Jacob lied to his father Isaac, and years later, Jacob's sons lied to him. David committed adultery. And had the woman's husband murdered, and David's daughter was raped, and two of his sons were murdered. Haman built a gallows in which to hang Mordecai, but it was Haman who was hanged there instead. The law of compensation. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That's Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. There's a quote from Wearsby. Pharaoh and the Egyptian people sinned against the flood of light and insulted God's mercy. The Lord had endured with much long-suffering the rebellion and arrogance of the king of Egypt as well as his cruel treatment of the Jewish people. God had warned Pharaoh many times, but the man wouldn't submit. Jehovah had publicly humiliated the Egyptian gods and goddesses and proved himself to be the only true and living God. Yet the nation would not believe. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. That's Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11. God's mercy should have brought Pharaoh to his knees. Instead, he repeatedly hardened his heart. Pharaoh's officials humbled themselves before Moses, chapters 3 and chapter 8. Why couldn't Pharaoh follow their example? Pride goes before a destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. 
That was uh, from Wesby. I thought it was a good little summary of the lesson there. As Christians, we can apply this as well. If we keep on sinning, if we keep on hardening our heart, if we refuse to submit to some area in our life where God is calling us to change and we refused, then our heart will grow hard and he will have to discipline us and that won't be pleasant. It's easier to submit early and obey early than put it off. Verse 6, Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Now, why did God save the Israelites? Was it because they were better people than the Egyptians? Well, we read this before. It's in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 5 to 9. It's worth reading again to remind us of God's grace. The Israelites weren't delivered from the hand of the Egyptians because of their faithfulness, because of their devotion, because of their integrity. They were spared solely because of God's grace. So Ezekiel chapter 20 verses 5 to 9 says, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, Each of you, throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake, which means that God waited, God showed patience, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The children of Israel were not this ideal people. God wanted to destroy them in Egypt, but for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his reputation, he didn't. So why are we here today? Is it because we're better people than the other people who aren't saved? Absolutely not. God didn't choose us to be a part of his family because we're better than anyone else. It's just his sovereign will. It's just his grace and his mercy. It's all grace. We're just as prone to sin as anyone else. We were, like them, dead in trespasses and sins, unable to do anything for ourselves. We were rescued and redeemed. And it's just pure grace. It's just pure mercy. The verse continues in verse 7, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Spurgeon says, the Lord has put a difference between those who are his people and those who are not. There are many distinctions among men which will one day be blotted out, but permit me to remind you at the outset that this is an eternal distinction. So, what's the obvious distinction here? Egypt, a type of the world, is going to face judgment, while God's chosen people will be spared. It's very simple. 
have I want to apply this to us today. Have you ever heard the phrase or the saying, water in the boat is the ruin of the boat, but water under the boat is its support? There should always be difference between those who are gods and those who belong to the world. Does that make sense? As Christians, we should be in the world, but not of the world, meaning we should be in the world, but the world should not be in us. And the world, the trials that we face in this world, make us stronger. So as we, got next week, maybe the week after, I'm not sure, um, start in chapter 13, the Israelites are out of Egypt, but now God begins the task of taking Egypt out of the Israelites by taking him through a series of tests. He could have taken him straight to the promised land, but he didn't. There's a purposeful series of tests, and this is not even including the um, 40 years in the, or 38 years in the wilderness. In the same way, we are, when we are saved, we are redeemed from the world, from the slave market of sin. We are made perfect in a legal sense. We're justified. We're innocent before God, the judge. However, there's still much work to do in us because we need to be transformed into the image of Christ. And that process is called sanctification, the process of transforming us into the image of Jesus. So we should become more and more different from the world as we mature as Christians. Uh, verse 8. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and the people who follow you, after that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. So, again, it might seem unfair that God has been so harsh, but in chapter 4, what did God say? He gave him this warning. If you don't let my people go, my firstborn go, then yours will die. And Pharaoh had heard the word of the Lord, but neither hail, locusts, flies, lice, boils, frogs, etc. would soften his heart. And therefore, God had no other choice but to deliver this final knockout punch, so to speak. All right, chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This is an amazing thing. I mean, we think about the birth of Christ. What happened then? It went from B.C. to A.D. The whole calendar changed. Well, this is just about, or probably just as important as an event, is a picture of the, of the crucifixion. And the new year, like we have New Year's Day, well, their New Year's Day is Passover Day. Okay? It shall be the first month of the year to you. So it's a new beginning. That's what it means. It's a new beginning for the Jews. It's for the nation. So when the Lord liberates us from bondage, it's a dawning of a new day and the beginning of a new life. And when we read the words redeem and redemption in the New Testament, they speak of freedom from slavery. We have a new life to live. It's exciting. And verse 3, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. So 
there's a little picture here that the net of salvation, someone pointed this out, something I read somewhere, the net of salvation grows ever wider in Scripture. In Genesis 4, Abel offered a lamb for one man, himself. Here in Exodus 12, the children of Israel were to offer a lamb for a family. In Exodus 29, the priests were to offer a lamb for a nation. And in John chapter 1, we see a lamb who came to be offered for the whole world. So it's kind of, it gets bigger and bigger. Isaac's question, where is the lamb? Remember that? Genesis 22 verse 7. It introduced one of the major themes of the Old Testament as God's people waited for the Messiah. And the question was ultimately answered by John the Baptist when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 So the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus and it's affirmed in the New Testament in many places. I'll just read. I've got a few here. I'll just read one of them. I'll read the one from Acts. It's Acts chapter 8, verse 32 to 35. And um, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 7 to 8. It starts in verse 32. The place in Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away, For who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. I'll do one more. 1 Peter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but he was manifest in these last times for you. And there's more. That's something you look up. Look up lamb and do a search on that, and you can go through that. Verse 4, And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your account for the lamb. So basically, the rabbi has said that it's between 10 and 20 people. So if you, you need to have about 10 or 20 people to, to finish the lamb. More than 20 is too many, less than 10 is too little. So you combine families. Now, verse 3 said, a lamb. Verse 4 said, the lamb. And here in, again, uh, in verse 5, it says, your lamb. So it's a progressive revelation. Jesus is a lamb, but he's more than just a lamb. He's not just one of the great teachers, the great masters. No, he's the lamb. But he's got to be more than that too. He's got to be your lamb. And still in verse 5, shall be without blemish. There's a lot we can go through here when it talks about the description, but I'm just going to put out little bits. The lamb was chosen and examined on the 10th day of the month, and carefully watched for four days to make sure it met the divine specifications. There's no question that Jesus met all the requirements to be our lamb. For the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, when Jesus came in on the donkey, the victory procession there, during the days preceding the Passover, our Lord's enemies questioned him repeatedly, waiting for him to say something that they could attack. And during his various trials and interrogations, Jesus was repeatedly questioned and he passed every test. 
So they couldn't find anything wrong with him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Jesus knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, Jesus did no sin. And 1 John 3.5 says that in him was no sin. So Jesus was definitely the perfect lamb. There's more testimony. The thief said, he's done nothing wrong. The Roman centurion said, truly this must be the son of God. And Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Judas said desperately, I betrayed innocent blood. So on and on you can go through and you find that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. He is perfect. Uh, of A male of the first year, back to verse 5, he must be about a year old, 5 and 6. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you should keep it until the 14th day of the month. So by having it for four days, it becomes part of the family. So you get to know and this lamb becomes important to you. You become emotionally involved with it. It's like a pet. And when you have to kill it, it reminds you of how sin has serious consequences. And verse 6, Then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight. So there's thousands of lambs being slaughtered, but the language here says it. One lamb. Because there is, in the future, going to be only one lamb who will take away the sins of the world. Now, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, the lamb was slain, and its blood was applied to the lintel and to the side posts of the doors. So that means the top of, the, of where the door is, the door frame, and the sides. Now, it's not the life of the lamb that saved the people from judgment, but the death of the lamb. Uh, there's... Hebrews 9.22 and Leviticus 17.11 Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now, some people claim to admire the life and teachings of Jesus, but don't want to think about or accept the cross. Yet it's his death on the cross that paid the price for our redemption. And I've got a couple of verses here. Matthew 20.28 Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many Matthew twenty six twenty eight, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Uh, Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And, and there's more. Uh, I'll do one more. Hebrews nine twenty eight. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation so again you can do a search on that and you can find all the verses about Jesus being the the ransom for us Exodus 12 verse 7 and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it so in verse 22 which is ahead uh, we read that the blood was to be applied with hyssop and it's a little tree that speaks of humility it's like a little shrub about 30 centimeters to 60 centimeters high and it's got these little um, woody stems, so you can actually dip it in and use it like a paintbrush. Why hyssop? Why not a branch of an oak tree or something like that? Well, just a lowly shrub. A person doesn't get saved until he's humble before God, until he realizes he's a sinner. He's got to come low. Now, for the blood to be effective, it had to be applied to the doorpost. God promised, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's not sufficient just to know that Christ was sacrificed for the sins of the world. We must appropriate that sacrifice for ourselves and be able to say with Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. 
Galatians 2.20. So it's got to be a personal thing. It's not enough just to know about it. Verse 8, Then they shall eat the flesh on that night. Now, remember when um, Jesus said that? You have to eat my flesh in the New Testament, in John? In John chapter 6. It confused his disciples no end. What do you mean we have to eat you? Well, you have to assimilate or to absorb the character of Jesus into our lives. It's not a physical eating of him, as some people wrongly believe. But we must allow him to rule and reign from within. And that's a principle which is pictured here in the Passover. We have to eat the lamb. Uh, Roasted in fire. What does this mean? Well, the lamb was roasted with fire as a picture of the fact that as Jesus hung on the cross, God hurled upon his son the fire of his wrath that he should have hurled upon me. Jesus died in my place. I should have been roasted in that fire. With unleavened bread. Now, leaven is a picture of sin, the Bible says in the New Testament. But there's more to this. The unleavened bread that they used for the Passover is poked and striped. It means it's got holes in it and stripes on it. Just as the back of Jesus was striped by the flagellum and his side was pierced with a spear. So going back to the yeast, yeast is an image of sin. It's hidden. It works silently and secretly. It spreads and pollutes and causes a dough to rise. It's pride. You find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Both Jesus and Paul compared false teaching to yeast, but it's also compared to hypocrisy and sinful living. Paul admonishes local churches to purge out the sin from their midst and present themselves as an unleavened loaf to the Lord. So purge out the leaven. That's what he wants us to be pure. And with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boil it at all with water. So why the bitter herbs? What do the bitter herbs represent? What do you think bitter herbs represent? That's right. It's the bondage. It's the um, all those years of being slaves, of being in bondage. And you know what? We can sometimes forget, just like the Israelites did, how hard it was before we became Christians. Okay? The Israelites, when they are going through the wilderness wanderings, they called out for the good old days. They said, we want to go back to Egypt. We have the melons and the cucumbers and all these nice things. And But it's called in the scriptures the iron furnace. Why would you want to go back and live in an iron furnace? You know, the place, a house of bondage. There's lots of names the scriptures uses for Egypt, the house of bondage, iron furnace, other things. You wouldn't want to go back there. But your mind starts playing tricks on you. And as, as Christians, when we go through trials, we, it's easy for us to think, oh, it was easy before I was a Christian. But it wasn't. It was painful. It was empty. It was hopeless. Why would you want to go back to that? It had no future. No purpose. But roasted in fire, its head with its legs and entrails. So Jesus gave us his all. The whole lamb was roasted, whole, nothing taken off it, nothing gutted or anything like that. It was just the whole lamb. So Jesus gave us his all, and in turn, we're to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Verse 10, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. So you eat this in one sitting. It's finished in one meal. So Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Okay, The work is accomplished. It's complete. So you don't have anything left over. And verse 11, And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the children of Israel were all dressed, ready to go. And guess what? In the same way, we should have that same attitude of being ready to go because the Lord can come for us at any time. And when he does call us, we'll take part in the marriage feast of the Lamb with him in eternity. So verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, it's not the expense of the house, like, the, you know, I've got a two-story mansion, so I'm, I'm all right, no. And it's not the righteousness of the people in the house that mattered. The only thing that saved them was the blood applied to the house. So it doesn't matter how good a person you are, or how much money you have, or how well off you are, the only thing that's going to save you is the blood of Jesus. And they had to apply the blood to the doorposts of their own homes. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus said. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. So we need each one of us to open the door of our hearts to Jesus personally. We need to apply the sacrifice that Jesus has given us. Verse 14 So this day shall be to you a, a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So basically, the only work you can do is what you need to do to eat. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. So, just to summarize that, Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the first month. The following day, a seven-day celebration began called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a third feast begins, which is called the Feast of First Fruits. So, the Feast of First Fruits is a picture of the resurrection. So, we have the death of the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, and then in the middle of the unleavened bread, a picture of the resurrection. It's First Fruits. Jesus was the first fruit, which means that we follow. It gives us hope. Uh, verse 18. 
In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. Verse 21 Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So the word translated basin there is the Egyptian word sap, and it speaks of a basin you use for washing your feet when you go into the house. So basically, the blood is pulled at the front of the door in this basin. So I imagine that, you know, you'd have dirty, muddy feet and they have like a, a thing of water there. You slosh your feet around in it and walk into the house. So this time, the blood was there. And they they'd blood up the sides of the door, across the top, and the blood would be dripping down. So it's a picture of the cross with the blood flowing down. Verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer, remember those angels, to come into your house to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and to your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you will keep this service. And it shall be, when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Shouldn't that be our response too, for our salvation? Bow our heads and worship? Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now, here's a bit of the Jewish tradition. It's really cool, I reckon. My wife would tell me off using that word, but I'll use Okay, it's really good. In the Jewish Passover meal to this day, there are four cups of blessing. Between the first and second cups, three matzos, stacked on top of each other, are removed from a linen pouch, and the one in the middle is broken. Now, half of the broken matzo is then wrapped in a linen napkin and hidden for the children of the family to find. The one who finds it is given a special prize and a celebration follows. So, three matzos, the one in the middle is taken out, it's broken in half, and half of it is hidden in a linen napkin, okay? Now, if you ask the Jewish rabbis or read Jewish literature to, to determine the meaning of this custom, there's lots of theories, but there's no consensus, because they don't know why. They know it's there, but they don't know why. They can't explain this ceremony, this particular ceremony, and it's known as the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but afikamen. Afikamen is the only word in the Passover celebration which is not Hebrew. It's a Greek word, and it means, I came. Isn't that cool? I came. Now, the body of Jesus, the middle person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was broken, wrapped in linen, hidden away, and discovered amidst great celebration. So why is only half of the matzo broken 
in the Passover tradition. Because as a God-man, it was only Jesus' humanity that died. That's why it's only half. Thus the Afikamen of the Passover perfectly pictures the Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Can you imagine that? The wailing and the weeping. The, it would have been terrible. I watched a movie with my daughters, um, or our family did last week, the, the Ten Commandments, in Charlton Heston and that, and you hear, you know, this, is this eerie wailing as, as the firstborn are being killed. And um, it's a really good picture. It's a good movie to watch. It's not all completely accurate, but a lot of it is pretty good. So Wisby says, The lesson here is obvious. Unless you're protected by the blood of Christ, when death comes, you'll be completely unprepared, and you don't know when death is coming. If you're not saved, you need to call on Jesus right now. Today is a day of salvation. Verse 31, Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Now why would Pharaoh say, bless me also? Well, I think Pharaoh is starting to realize that God is God. God is the only one who has ultimate power. God is the creator of the universe. God is in control. And Pharaoh only comes to this place of submission after the trials, after being broken. Verse 33, And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. Can you imagine the fear? So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they had requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Can you imagine the Israelites going, knock, knock, knock. Hey, um, would you give us your material possessions? <laughs> Look, take what you want. Just get out of here before you all die. <laughs> Please, go. Verse 37, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. So, you know, you heard that in Peter, I think it is, you know, gird the lines of your mind. Well, this is literally, they had their, their clothes girded, um, cinched around the waist to give mobility to the legs, shoes on their feet, walking sticks in hand, and kneading troughs on their shoulders with their dough in it. The children of Israel looked like backpackers. <laughs> so a whole lot of backpackers walking out. And guess where they first stopped? It's called Succoth. That means tent town. So a whole lot of backpackers camping. There were 600,000 men on foot besides children. That's somewhere between 2 and 3 million people all up. Verse 38. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. This mixed multitude, they're not of the children of Israel. They're others who decided to go along on the journey. So Numbers 11.4 is interesting. It says, now the mixed multitude 
who were among them yielded to intense cravings, so the children of Israel also wept again. These mixed multitude were the ones that seemed to cause trouble for the nation. And um, you could say that the mixed multitude represents those in this world who outwardly identify with God's people, but inwardly are not truly children of God. They might be church members and even religious leaders, but the attitudes and appetites are different to those who belong to the Lord. Jesus warned, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew 7.21 Great multitudes followed Jesus during his earthly ministry, but he wasn't impressed with these crowds. I'm just going to read something from John chapter 6. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? And then he goes on, The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And notice that in verse 60 it said, Therefore many of his disciples, many of his followers. And it says later in verse 64, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And in the same way, there's people in the church today who look like Christians, smell like Christians, but they're false converts. Talk like Christians, all that kind of thing. So verse 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And they came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. So, if you're a pagan or um, Gentile, you can't eat the Passover. Well, you couldn't. But if you were circumcised, you could. So, circumcision is a cutting off of the flesh. It represents the cutting off of the flesh. So, when we repent, we can also partake of the Passover. Verse 45, A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. So why was no bone to be broken? Well, there's two possible reasons. One is restoration. David, a man who was a shepherd by trade, and a sheep by nature, because he followed his Lord, speaks of restoration when he writes, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Psalm 51 verse 8. There's this uh, theory that in Bible times, if a lamb kept running away, the shepherd would break its legs, set the legs, and then carry the lamb around for six or eight weeks until the legs healed. And then by that time, the lamb would have developed an affection for and a dependency on the shepherd. And the lamb would never ever go away from the shepherd again because he's learnt to stay close to the shepherd. But Jesus never ran away. He never rebelled, and so he never needed his legs to be broken. Now, reconciliation. 
to make the death quicker, the soldiers would break the legs of those being crucified and just bring the onset of suffocation um, quicker. They'd suffocate quicker because they couldn't support themselves and they'd suffocate. Um, however, when they came to do this to Jesus, six hours after he had been crucified, he was already dead. He'd given up his spirit. So what do they do? They poked a spear in his side to make sure. Now, there's a principle here. If we're going to be dead to self, then when they put the spear in us, you know, when they prod us, then we shouldn't respond. Okay? How do you know if you're really dead that you have really died to self? When they put the spear into Jesus, he didn't go, ouch. What did he do? Nothing. But what came out of him? Blood and water. So if we have died to self, we won't react when we're poked. We won't say, ouch, stop. All that will come out of us is the blood of forgiveness and the power and fruit of a life filled with the Holy Spirit. So instead of standing up for our rights, instead of wanting what we want and relationship that's broken because we won't agree, die to self and let the blood of forgiveness and the fruit of a life of the Holy Spirit come out of you. Last little bit, 47 to 51. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it, and when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Father, thank you for this um, chapter here. Lord, there's, there's so much in here and we've, we've gone through it pretty quick. But Lord, I just um, pray you help us to realize that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the main point. And we need to appropriate the blood. We need to have our sins forgiven. Lord, I just thank you so much for this picture that you painted throughout the scriptures, Lord. And help us to just uh, rejoice in the fact that we have been delivered. We have been redeemed. We've been ransomed from the slave market of sin. We are now free. Help us to live as free people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.